Welcome to the Planet Storytime podcast, where we use the power of our imaginations to use the pictures in our minds for some of the best stories ever told. I'm your host, Thomas Mitchell. Today, we present our stellar podcast for the month of October, where we feature all of our episodes from the previous month. This podcast includes The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle by Beatrix Potter, How the Camel Got Its Hump by Rudyard Kipling, and The Tale of the Pumpkin House by T.M. Gannam. We've included chapter markers to help you pick your favorite story easily. Now, if you can, take a deep breath in and hold it. And let it out. Now, we're ready for today's stories. Remember to see the pictures in your head as you listen to the stories. I hope you enjoy it. The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle by Beatrix Potter Once upon a time, there was a little girl called Lucy who lived at a farm called Littletown. She was a good little girl, only she was always losing her pocket handkerchiefs. One day, little Lucy came into the farmyard crying. Oh, she did cry so. I've lost my pocket hankin. Three hankins and a penny. Have you seen them, Tabby Kitten? The kitten went on washing her white paws, so Lucy asked a speckled hen. Sally Hennypenny, have you found three pocket hankins? The speckled hen ran into a barn, clucking, oh, I go barefoot, barefoot, barefoot. Then Lucy asked Mr. Robin sitting on a twig. Mr. Robin looked sideways at Lucy with his bright black eye, and he flew over a stile and away. Lucy climbed upon the stile and looked up at the hill behind Little Town, a hill that goes up, up, into the clouds as though it had no top. And a great way up the hillside, she thought she saw some white things spread upon the grass. Lucy scrambled up the hill as fast as her stout legs would carry her. She ran along a steep pathway, up and up, until Little Town was right away down below. She could have dropped a pebble down the chimney. Presently, she came to a spring, bubbling out from the hillside. Someone had stood a tin can upon a stone to catch the water, but the water was already running over, for the can was no bigger than an egg cup. And where the sand upon the path was wet, there were footmarks of a very small person. Lucy ran on and on. The path ended under a big rock. The grass was short and green, and there were clothes, props cut from bracken stems with lines of plated rushes, and a heap of tiny clothespins, but no pocket handkerchiefs. There was something else, a door, straight into the hill, and inside it someone was singing. Lily, white and clean, oh, with little frills between, oh, smooth and hot, red, rusty spot, never here be seen. 
Lucy knocked once, twice, and interrupted the song. A little frightened voice called out, oh, Who's that? Lucy opened the door, and what do you think was there inside the hill? A nice clean kitchen with a flagged floor and wooden beams just like any other thorn kitchen. Only the ceiling was so low that Lucy's head nearly touched it, and the pots and pans were small, and so was everything there. There was a nice, hot, singy smell, and at the table, with an iron in her hand, stood a very stout, short person staring anxiously at Lucy. Her print gown was tucked up, and she was wearing a large apron over her striped petticoat. Her little black nose went sniffle, 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 and her eyes went twinkle, twinkle, and underneath her cap, where Lucy had yellow curls, that little person had prickles. Who are you? said Lucy. Have you seen my pocket, Hankins? The little person made a bobbed curtsy. Oh, yes, if you please, um, my name is Mrs. Tickywinkle. I'm an excellent clear starcher. And then she took something out of a clothes basket and spread it on the ironing blanket. What's that thing? said Lucy. That's not my pocket, Hankin. Oh, no, if you please, um, that's a little scarlet waistcoat belonging to Mr. Robin. And she ironed it and folded it and put it on one side. Then she took something else off a clothes horse. That isn't my penny, said Lucy. Oh, no, if you please, um, that's a tablecloth belonging to Jenny Wren. Look how it's stained with currant wine. It's very bad to wash, said Mrs. Tiggywinkle. Mrs. Tiggywinkle's nose went sniffle, sniffle, snuffle, and her eyes went twinkle, twinkle, and she fetched another hot iron from the fire. There's one of my pocket hankins, cried Lucy, and there's my penny. Mrs. Tiggywinkle ironed it and goffered it and shook out the frills. Oh, that is lovely, said Lucy. And what are those long yellow things with fingers like gloves? Oh, that's a pair of stockings belonging to Sally Hennypenny. Look how she's worn the heels out with scratching in the yard. She'll very soon go barefoot, said Mrs. Tiggywinkle. Why, there's another handkerchief, but it isn't mine. It's red. Oh, no, if you please, um, that one belongs to old Mrs. Rabbit, and it did so smell of onions, I've had to wash it separately. I can't get out the smell. There's another one of mine, said Lucy. What are those funny little white things? That's a pair of mittens belonging to Tabby Kitten. I only have to iron them. She washes them herself. There's my last pocket hankin, said Lucy. And what are you dipping into the basin of starch? They're little dicky shirt fronts belonging to Tom Titmouse. Most terrible particular, said Mrs. Tiggywinkle. Now I've finished my ironing. I'm going to air some clothes. What are those dear soft fluffy things, said Lucy. Oh, those are woolly coats belonging to the little lambs at Skelgill. Look at the sheep mark on the shoulder. And here's one marked for Kate's Garth, and three that come from Little Town. They're always marked at washing, said Mrs. Tickywinkle. 
and she hung up all sorts of sizes of clothes, small brown coats of mice, and one velvety black moleskin waistcoat, and a red tail coat with no tail belonging to Squirrel Nutkin, and a very much shrunk blue jacket belonging to Peter Rabbit, and a petticoat not marked that had gone lost in the washing, and at last the basket was empty. Then Mrs. Tiggywinkle made tea, a cup for herself and a cup for Lucy. They sat before the fire on a bench and looked sideways at one another. Mrs. Tiggywinkle's hand holding the teacup was very, very brown and very, very wrinkly with the soap suds, and all through her gown and her cap there were hairpins sticking wrong end out so that Lucy didn't like to sit too near her. They had finished tea, they tied up the clothes and bundles, and Lucy's pocket handkerchiefs were folded up inside her clean penny and fastened with a silver safety pin. Then they made up the fire with turf and came out and locked the door and hid the key under the door sill. Away down the hill trotted Lucy and Mrs. Tiggywinkle with the bundle of clothes. All the way down the path, little animals came out of the fern to meet them. The very first that they met were Peter Rabbit and Benjamin Bunny. And she gave them their nice clean clothes, and all the little animals and birds were so very much obliged to dear Mrs. Tickywinkle that at the bottom of the hill, when they came to the stile, there was nothing left to carry except Lucy's one little bundle. Lucy scrambled up the stile with the bundle in her hand, and then she turned to say good night and to thank the washerwoman. But what a very odd thing! Mrs. Tickywinkle had not waited either for thanks or for the washing bill. She was running, running, running up the hill. And where was her white frilled cap? And her shawl? And her gown? And her petticoat? And how small she had grown, and how brown, and covered with prickles. Why, Mrs. Tiggywinkle was nothing but a hedgehog. We'll be right back. Hey parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. The How the Camel Got His Hump by Rudyard Kipling This tale tells us how the camel got his big hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for the human, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert because he did not want to work. And besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most excruciatingly idle. And when anybody spoke to him, he said, Humph, 
just humph and no more. Presently, the horse came to him on Monday morning with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth and said, Camel, oh camel, come out and trot like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the horse went away and told the human. Presently, the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, Camel, oh camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the dog went away and told the human. Presently, the ox came to him with the yoke on his neck and said, Camel, camel, come and plow like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the ox went away and told the human. At the end of the day, the human called the horse and the dog and the ox together and said, Three, oh three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all, but that humph thing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now, so I am going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it. That made the three very angry, with the world so new and all, and they held a palaver, and an indaba, and a pukayat, and a powwow on the edge of the desert, and the camel came chewing milkweed most excruciating idle, and laughed at them. Then he said, Humph, and went away again. Presently there came along the genie in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Genies always travel that way because it is magic. And he stopped to Palaver and Powwow with the three. Genie of all deserts, said the horse, is it right for anyone to be idle with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the genie. Well, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. Whew, said the genie, whistling. That's my camel for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? He says, Humph, said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only Humph, and he won't plow, said the ox. Very good, said the genie. I'll humph him, if you will kindly wait a minute. The genie rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert and found the camel most excruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, what's this I hear of you doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph! said the camel. The genie sat down with his chin in his hand and began to think a great magic while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your excruciating idleness. And he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the genie. You might say it once too often. 
Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said, Humph, again. But no sooner had he said it than he saw his back that he was so proud of, puffing up and puffing up into a great big lolloping humph. Do you see that? said the genie. That's your very own humph that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday, and you've done no work since Monday, when the work began. Now you are going to work. How can I, said the camel, with this humph on my back? That's made a purpose, said the genie. All because you missed those three days. You'll be able to work now for three days without eating, because you can live on your humph. And don't you ever say I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three and behave. Humph yourself. And the camel humphed himself, humph and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a humph. We call it a hump now, not to hurt his feelings. But he has never yet caught up with the other three days that he missed at the beginning of the world. And he has never yet learned how to behave. And now, a sing-songy poem. The camel's hump is an ugly lump, which well you may see at the zoo. But uglier yet is the hump we get from having too little to do. A kiddies and grown-ups too, ooh, ooh, if we haven't enough to do, ooh, ooh, we get the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frowsy head and a snarly, yarly voice. We shiver and scowl and we grunt and we growl at our bath and our boots and our toys. There ought to be a corner for me and I know there is one for you. When we get the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. The cure for this ill is not to sit still or frowst with a book by the fire, but to take a large hoe and a shovel also and dig till you gently perspire. And then you will find the sun and the wind and the genie of the garden too have lifted the hump, the horrible hump, the hump that is black and blue. I get it as well as you. Ooh, if I haven't enough to do, ooh, ooh, we all get hump, camellias, hump, kiddies and grown-ups, too. The Tale of the Pumpkin House by T.M. Gannam This is the tale of the pumpkin house on All Hallows' Eve by the towers in the grove and how you just never know about this spectacular world, especially on Halloween. Oh, and how we must take good care and stand tall in our fright. In fact, 
Prepare for a fright now, dear reader, listener, or otherwise diviner, for this tale may raise you to a higher pitch, but you must suffer the sharps and flats to get there. If you're still with me, let us to the beginning. The pumpkin house rested in a handsome neighborhood of several blocks, sixty houses stacked of grand, mostly red Victorians, each of its own special character. Now, if you're not familiar with the Victorian-style homes, let me try to describe them to you. They are tall and stout and charming, with frank but stately front porches, with features like arched windows, slate roofs, sharp gables and spires, some even dressed with turrets and towers. Now, while the pumpkin house sat in the middle of the neighborhood, it stood apart from the rest of the homes, for it was of a different look. It drew a stark contrast with its orange brick and ivy, giving it the look of a pumpkin. It featured a proud tower in the northeast corner, peaked by a rooster vane, with ivy traveling all across the side and the front of the house, from west to east, to catch the morning sun. No one seemed to be sure, but it surely seemed so, that houses with their unique personalities think, feel, and communicate, just like the rest of us humans, except that they do it in the way houses do. On this particular block of Mountjoy Avenue, the pumpkin house, which was nestled between its red-brick neighbors, had to suffer jokes, snickers, and teasing of every like and sort, because it was so different from the other houses. Whoever heard of orange brick, the other houses would say. Look at that scraggly, shaggy ivy, like a messy haircut. And worse. Despite their cruelty, the pumpkin house stood proudly with general content because it did so love its family, who absolutely adored, not to mention were quite proud of residing in the pumpkin house at good old 1031 Mountjoy Avenue, along with its eight cats that helped protect the grounds. First was K.T., who kept order. Raven, who was most often misbehaving, found opportunity. Jack was of surveillance. Minnie covered the details. Sam, well, Sam needed to rest most times. Gracie managed the middle ground. Cuddles, the most rugged of the bunch, was the tailless. And Boss, she called the shots. Yes, between the kitty cats and the sweet human family with the mama and the pops and the kiddos one too, the pumpkin house had all the love it needed. Little did it know it would receive much more. But as things go in this world, it often takes great difficulty to make for great joy. And that is truly where our story begins. Now the pumpkin house and the surrounding neighborhood sat astride the towers in the grove which stood within a long rectangular wood 
interspersed with gazebos of every color and diversity, punctuated by long, tall towers that propped up the sides and ends along a loose perimeter of the lush acreage. Legend had long told of goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches that lived inside these towers and placed a haunt in the grove. Though it appeared to be only legend, as on the surface, no one would have known the otherwise. For this grove of towers was such a lovely place that the wee town with all its humans and animal creatures and the like ever so fully engaged with a languid bliss the beauty of this parkland shared by every single one. How were they to realize the impending haunt that lurked behind the curtains of their awareness? They could not. That is, until the curtains finally opened in the year 1897 when the haunt became known. This All Hallows' Eve began like any other when at the spot of sunset, still the grey light of dusk, the trick-or-treaters began bobbing up and down the wide avenue of Mountjoy, visiting each and every bold dwelling in hunt for the best candy the denizens of the grove had to offer, while the band of eight cats settled into maps, seeding the evening to the curiously peculiar humans. The trick-or-treating was at a steady hum when a sudden, terrifying splash of spookiness and horror with a blazing horn of siren fire. The goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches sprayed the trick-or-treaters with pokes and howls, spits and screeches, horrifying the children and their grown-ups. Running to and from every direction, the poor people of the towers and the grove found themselves in a fiasco of frenzy of which they had never known. The houses of Mountjoy Avenue sat powerless as they watched the wretched scene play out before them. Their beloved caretakers and their sweet children who came home to them each and every day were being frightened to the end of their very wits, and there was nothing they could do to stop it. Indeed, the pumpkin house's reaction was no different, and perhaps due to having known mistreatment, felt even more powerfully the pain of fear that their human friends were suffering. For certain, the pumpkin house had never felt so compelled to right a wrong, and the energy that came with this desire began to swell so much that the handsome house began to glow like a fierce and noble jack-o'-lantern, lighting up the entire block. And suddenly, in the midst of the neighbors scrambling everywhere for some kind of cover to find relief from the ornery rascal goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches who were wreaking such havoc, the lustrous ivy that was spread all across the pumpkin house began to move and swirl and take a life of its own. The ivy began to release its clench and lift away from the brick and extend upward and out as if it was stretching to the sky and seas after waking up from a long sleep. Somehow, instinctively, 
the spindly, outstretched ivy extended like tendrils and began waving, tickling, and swatting away with their leafy shoots at the now-alarmed sundry goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches, stunning them into their own fright and forcing them to run and scramble through the viney swishing and swooshing until they fell back in full retreat to the towers in the grove. It was then incomprehensibly still and silent. The people of the neighborhood caught their collective breath and looked at each other as if they couldn't believe what had just transpired. Then everyone seemed to turn to the pumpkin house and the impossibly long vines settled back into a broad hug around the orange brick. In fact, there was one moment when every eye in the neighborhood was cast upon it, including all the houses up and down Mount Joy. Even the moms and the pops and the kids one too looked up at it from the front porch. The humble home seemed to look down, and some say it drew a blush for just a flash. before anyone could even say a word. The goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches returned to their squealing rampage and descended upon the pumpkin house with all sundry scissor and shear, primed to begin hacking and slicing the heroic vines. The ivy jumped back awake, but winced with a sharp snip to one of its wisps. The neighborhood, the humans and houses alike, took a giant gasp, and the band of eight cats that had at last shaken off their naps shot a collective stare to one another and jumped too. Boss called the shot with a mighty meow, which some have translated as, Protect our pumpkin! And the band of eight felines flew on and around the viney schools, unleashing a cacophony of kitty bedlam aimed at the dastardly goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches. Cuttles, unencumbered by tail, flexed her muscles against the rascal mob and began going after their sharp cutting tools. Gracie focused on the center of the wicked troop with her snarls and scratches. Sam yawned obnoxiously in their faces. Minnie ensured their agitation with her whiskers, paws, and claws. Jack surveyed the scene and checked for every last one of the spirit scoundrels. KT kept them unto their business until the job was fully rendered, and then indeed, it was done. The kitty cats successfully terrorized the goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches so thoroughly that despite their ready blades, they could shave no more of the pumpkin house's grizzled green whiskers. The spooky rascals were forced into retreat again, and this time for good, shutting themselves back in the towers, never to return. The people of this grove of towers caught their breath again and returned their stare to the pumpkin house. The band of eight cats, already in some form of repose, looked put out, but content. 
the pumpkin house, feeding all eyes upon it once again, seemed to tip an ivy stalk near the top of its tower as if acknowledging their stunned appreciation. No one ever looked at the pumpkin house quite the same again, and the towers in the grove stayed happily quiet forever and evermore. The End I hope you enjoyed listening to our October Stellar podcast as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. We're so glad you could join us today. As always, thanks to our dear friend Paxton Stanley for his spectacular music. Until next time, remember to keep using your imagination and discover just how powerful your mind truly is. Goodbye for now. If you enjoy the Planet Storytime podcast and would like to support the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast player and tell your friends about us. You can also support us with contributions on our Patreon page. Simply go to patreon.com and search for the Planet Storytime podcast. You can also reach out to us with suggestions requests and questions by email at planet.storytime at gmail.com. Goodbye for now.